This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Right now, the latest tally of jobless claims is out. Ahead of tomorrow's release of the Government Employment Report for October, we're joined by Bob Bruska, Chief Economist, Fact and Opinion Economics, based in New York. Bob, thanks for joining us today. Based on the applications for first-time unemployment, a very positive post-pandemic trend over the past four weeks, one would think that tomorrow's report is going to be uh, some very good news news on the job front, but uh, that's not always the case. Yes, that's right. Um, if, if predicting the monthly jobless report were that easy, um, I'd probably have more hair. Um, we, we have a couple of other surveys that come from the ISM reports, you know, non-manufacturing and manufacturing. And although the non-manufacturing report you may have seen yesterday was just a blockbuster, an all-time high, it rose very sharply on the month. Activity just blowing off steam, looking really great, but 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 the employment component was lower. So, you know what we see in these uh, in these indicators is that there's a lot of demand out there, but um, the physical variables are constrained. You know, output often isn't rising; orders are rising, not output. Um, Firms can't find enough workers, and the labor doesn't rise. The labor part goes down. Inventories can't be rebuilt. Inventory to sales ratios are very low. And so when you look at these ISM tech reports, you've got to get a look inside of the supply chain problems. And so you can't just assume because we've had strength in demand, you're going to see a strong employment report. Now, I think we're going to see about a half a million jobs tomorrow. But, um, you know, since we're still making up for lost ground, that's not a fantastic number. That's kind of an okay number. And then uh, as far as the household survey is concerned, you're going to have uh, revisions in the previous months along with the October number. Uh, do you expect those uh, you know, September and August to be revised up as uh, more as they find more workers who came into the workforce? You know, I don't know. You never know what the revisions are going to do. Um, I'll, I'll look at the revisions and I'll analyze them after I can see some data. I mean, there are a couple of different things going on that could happen. And it's just, you know, I mean, they didn't count people, so we just don't know who they didn't count. Um, if we knew who they didn't count, they would have been counted. So, um, you know, Inspector Clouseau always used to say, you know, and I do not know what I do not know. And I think that's an important thing for people to remember sometimes. When it comes to uh, gauging the the true specter or the the true kind of uh, 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 size of employment or unemployment, um, what's the better, more reliable number? Is it the Department of Labor or is it the ADP survey, the the private payroll survey? Uh, Well, the ADP is a private survey. It's much less comprehensive. Uh, And it's a large survey, but... It, it's idiosyncratic in terms of the kind of firms that it, that it covers because it covers ADP members. And um, so that may put some kind of a bias into the survey. I think you really have to look at the uh, household survey. And um, you know, long-term, the household and the payroll surveys 
uh, from the BLS really tell you the same story, but month to month they can tell you very different stories. So I think we look at the household survey for the unemployment rates, and we look at the payroll survey to get a better gauge of what's really happening on a month-to-month basis. But, you know, since we've been through this COVID period, there has been uh, jarring volatility in both of those surveys. So the payroll survey really hasn't been that much less volatile um, compared to household than it used to be. So uh, we just have to admit that when we get numbers every month, we don't know really how much to trust them. That's just the fact of it. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Bob Bruska, Chief Economist, Fact and Opinion Economics in New York. Money Talks as the WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. American businesses with more than 100 employees have been given a January 4th deadline for their workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or face weekly testing. And uh, to get the latest now, some more insight. We talked to him at 1020. Let's check in with Paul Starkman, employment attorney at Clark Hill based in Chicago. Paul, thanks for joining us once again. Um, The insight or some of the uh, analysis on this uh, OSHA rule uh, starting to come in and one said it was designed to survive a court review another person said uh, that January 4th deadline may come and go because a lot of companies uh, aren't going to enforce it until uh, the courts do make a determination Uh, which side do you come down on or do you believe both well I think that employers take a risk of not complying with the OSHA standard while it is in effect. Um, I, in terms of waiting, uh, that to me seems to be a risky strategy. OSHA at least uh, has some potential for uh, surviving a uh, legal attack, so I think uh, it's risky to, to wait and see if these legal challenges, which are sure to come, uh, will uh, bear any fruit at all. Obviously, uh, there there is the you know the the emergency nature of the COVID nineteen pandemic that would uh, you know it would behoove everyone to get vaccinated and truly get this behind us. But how often does corporate America get involved in the health of its employees? I mean, every now and then you hear about um, health insurance plans that charge more for smokers or people who may be overweight. But this is the, really the first time or or one of the rare occasions where uh, corporate America is being asked to get in, get involved in. Uh, a very specific health situation. Yes, this is uh, very rare for the federal government to impose such a wide-spanning uh, mandate on private and private sector employers to uh, have their uh, employees, uh, you know, take one uh, particular type of uh, vaccine for a particular type of uh, uh, disease. So it's it's certainly something that. Is, is somewhat unprecedented. There are uh, uh, some cases going back to the early 1900s that, that allow this type of, of mandate, but we're seeing, uh, we're going to see whether this will uh, hold up in court. And then on the subject of the carrot and the stick approach, uh, if you do a vaccine mandate for uh, federal employees and federal contractors, uh, how much of the private sector goes along with that just because they have to keep up? Um, this, is the pri- this is the private sector uh, mandate. So all employers with 100 or more employees, private sector employees, are now covered by the, uh, the mandate, which you know builds on the mandate that was imposed on federal workers and uh, health care workers so and federal contractors so we're seeing this uh, now broadened to all public and private sector uh, employers
So there's going to be a lot of legal wrangling coming up. Thanks for joining us. Paul Starkman, employment attorney at Clark Hill, based in Chicago. Your daily transaction for useful information. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. OPEC and other oil-producing countries will continue current output levels, which have helped push prices to their highest levels in seven years. Let's look at what's going on and what could lie ahead with Phil Flynn, senior market analyst at the Price Group and Fox Business News contributor based in Chicago. Phil, thanks for joining us once again today. It sounds like uh, OPEC is not going to uh, open up the spigot anytime soon. They sure are not, and, and and much to the dismay of the Biden administration, they called on them to raise production by six to 800,000 barrels a day. Now, OPEC did have a plan to raise production by 400,000 barrels a day, but most analysts believe that that is not enough. Of course, the Biden administration is now pointing to OPEC as the reason why their energy policies are failing. You know, why gasoline prices are going up, why your heating bill is probably going to go up 30 to 50 percent this winter. They say it's all OPEC's fault, and OPEC says it's not our problem. We're not the people that told you to stop investing in oil, and that could open up a new production war between the United States and OPEC when it comes to supply. Now, uh, not too long ago, uh, just as the pandemic was settling in, we were talking about record low uh, or, or low you know, uh, oil prices because of a, mm-hmm. a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Um, is this a case of the oil-producing company uh, countries trying to uh, make up some of that lost ground from 2020? Absolutely. You know, they lost a lot of money. And it was funny because it was President Trump that brought uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia back together. And at that time, it was a real win for the global economy because the glut of oil threatened to put a lot of uh, U.S. oil producers out of business and and it was damaging the economy. Uh, But once they got back together and the economy started to reopen, uh, now they, they realize that they regain control because with the Biden administration discouraging U.S. production, putting new regulations and canceling pipelines and the like, is now giving them a monopoly on, on the global swing supply. And so now I think they're using that advantage to try to make up for lost time, put money in their pockets, and the money that goes into their pocket is coming out of yours. Where are we now in terms of uh, weather-related refining capacity? There were some hurricane issues that needed to be uh, straightened out. And even on the uh, home heating fuel uh, uh, price front, uh, they were still, or at least some of the utilities were passing along uh, some of the increased costs from the difficulties they experienced during the freeze last winter. Yeah, it's, we're going to be paying for the freeze last winter. Um, we're going to be paying for the hurricane this spring and this summer. Uh, and there's no doubt that that's adding to the cost. I think the U.S. Uh, refining business has done a great job coming back from a hurricane, but make no mistake about it, this has been the slowest recovery from a hurricane in history just because of the size of the storm where it hit. Uh, so it's been a slow recovery. Uh, the good news is, is that we are turning the corner. U.S. refiners are ramping up production, and they have to because the demand for gasoline is strong. Uh, we expect the demand for heating fuels are going to be strong, and supplies are below average. So we really could use some help uh, you know, from the government to, to allow these producers to do what they do best, and you know, hopefully um, they'll get off their back and allow them to bring these prices back down. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Phil Flynn, Senior Market Analyst with the Price Group and Fox Business News Contributor, based in Chicago. We're joined by Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer, Crescent Capital, based in Chicago. Jack, thanks for joining us this afternoon. 
afternoon. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, worries hovering around the economy, inflation, the price of gas, supply chain issues. But uh, despite all of that, the market seems to be shrugging it off and chugging along. It is. Um, it's. It, uh, we got a really uh, interesting surprise this morning. We uh, fully expected the Bank of England to raise rates today. Uh, they changed their mind and left rates alone. And I think that bond investors are taking that as a sign that maybe um, inflation and global growth isn't as strong as uh, what they uh, believed. And uh, we're seeing interest rates drop. We're seeing uh, at least the uh, S&P 500 and the NASDAQ rise. Uh, and, uh, you know, investors are willing to put their risk-taking hats on again. And what is the second-day lead on uh, the Fed's announcement that it will begin uh, tapering its uh, bond buyback program that it, it started at the onset of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think the uh, the story there is that uh, Chairman Powell and the FOMC believe that economy and markets are, should be strong enough to withstand uh, a reduction in bond buying and uh, potential uh, rate hikes after that. Um, the the message they're giving is they're they're going to complete their uh, tapering. In other words, no longer buying, and then once they're done with that move on to uh, higher rates sometime in 2023. Interestingly, the bond market believes that that rate hiking program will likely start in the middle of next year, not uh, 2023. So we'll, we'll see where that shakes out. Just as uh, the... The, the Fed had a toolkit in place thanks to 2008 uh, to prevent another major financial crisis at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, does the Fed also have a, a, a toolkit in place um, if they start seeing the signs of that late 1970s style inflation showing up? Well, yeah, they'll go back to the toolkit that uh, uh, Chairman Volcker used um, when I started my career in uh, 1982, uh, and um, it's a pretty blunt instrument. But uh, if we if we raise rates high enough, um, that will quell any demand that's out there uh, and set the stage for lower uh, rates and lower inflation in the future. Um, I don't think they want to resort to that. That's sort of a break glass method of. Uh, uh, tackling. I think what investors are hoping for is that the Fed anticipates the uh, the inflation rate, tries to get out in front of it, and, uh, you know, tamps any, any flare-ups out before it, it gets to that point. And in terms of the supply chain disruptions and kind of all of the uh, events that have been taking place over the last summer, just signs that, you know, the, just the disruption coming from a cold stop to the economy to a, a, a cold start once again. Um, when, is all, when are all of those wrinkles expected to work themselves out? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I had uh, really came under the impression that a lot of this was just supply-driven, that we can't get into the infrastructure, the underpinning, the movement of goods and these containers and ships and, and all of that um, is, you know, needs to get back on track. Uh, and that demand is still low, but supply is even worse. What I've learned uh, in looking at the data, however, is that demand is 
far higher than it has been even in 2019. So not only are, do we have kinks in the system, the, the process of getting containers from wherever they are to, to here at home, um, but also the demand for the numbers of containers coming in is substantially higher than it was in 2019. So I do think that it, this isn't just a simple cyclical adjustment. We get people back on track and we move forward. I actually think we need to, um, you know, increase our infrastructure, build more capacity at some of these ports and the like. So, unfortunately, I don't think the supply chain slippage or whatever we want to call it is is going to go away anytime soon. Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer, Crescent Capital, based in Chicago. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Making sense of your dollars. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday as automakers incorporate the latest tech into vehicles. Autonomous and electric are the buzzwords. We welcome in Andrew Bush, former Chief Markets Intelligence Officer at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and economist at andrewbush.com. Thanks for joining us today, Andy. Let's put on our uh, futurist hats. They do look very futuristic. And talk about the uh, future of transportation and that uh, in the not too distant future, maybe in the year 2031 or 2041, if you want to drive somewhere, you uh, order a car via an app. It drives itself to your house and then takes you to your destination all on a single charge. Yeah, it's going to be a lot sooner than 2031. Um, there's a number of companies uh, that are already testing autonomous vehicles out west in Arizona. Um, and we have companies like Waymo that are putting cars uh, to test in New York City, believe it or not. So my call is this happens a lot faster. I think by 2025, there will be a country that says, let's go for it. Autonomous vehicles are fine. And then the world changes significantly. You mentioned one particular item of it. It's TAS. That's transportation as service. And it creates, I mean, there's all sorts of really fascinating things that are going to happen once that occurs. And I believe it's going to happen a lot faster than most people realize. 
There are three levels of autonomous driving. There's level one driver assistance where you as the driver, you do most of the work, but it can adjust cruise control speed or stay in a lane. Uh, If you have Chrysler vehicles, it already has the lane control warning. And if you're veering to one side, it it kicks you back into the center line. Uh, Level two, partial automation. It does most of the work, but you can merge or or make turns as the driver. And then you go all the way up to you just sit there and sit back and relax because the car is in control. Yeah, and that's level three, and that's being tested in a wide range of areas. Uh, Revivian is a a company that's launching some uh, a pickup and an SUV that their goal is to bring level three autonomy to its vehicles. A couple other companies like Too Simple and Plus AI uh, just went public with SPACs. Um, what's interesting about those companies, basically there was a big surge in their stock prices and then they came back off significantly. And, and that's really where it's, it's an interesting level to get involved with them. But both of those companies uh, I believe are running uh, tests out in Arizona um, and also looking at California as well. So it's the trucking side that will probably get it done first before the, 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 the taxi services or TAS transportation as service happens. But again, think about the ramifications of that. You don't need to buy a car. Um, you don't need to pay for gas. Uh, electronic vehicles will you know, do a lot of really positive things for the environment. And then you begin to get into commercial real estate. As an example, Chicago is about 30% of its downtown is dedicated to parking garages. So all of a sudden, you may not need all of those parking spaces, parking garages. And then the world opens up as to what those could be used for. So it's an exciting time in this space. Well, then, on top of that, if you want to talk about second-order consequences, um, cities like Chicago and elsewhere since the end of World War II have been designed for you to get into your car, you get on the highway, you go to work, and then you get back on the highway, you go home, you kiss your wife and 2.5 children, and that our entire life was oriented around expressway or highway development. And if you take that away, cities could look drastically different. Well, right. Well, I don't think we're going to get rid of the freeways and highways and roads anytime soon, but they'll change dramatically because if you do have autonomous vehicles and EVs, obviously the air quality is going to be better, but um, they're just so much more efficient at moving people than human beings. You don't have people like, you know, uh, looking at accidents as an example, right? You know, you don't have that kind of problem that occurs every day on I-90, uh, for an example. So um, there's just all sorts of positives come with this. Plus, then you begin to open up like green spaces. It, the cities become a lot more livable. You'll have bike lanes that you don't have to fight with people to, you know, cars and trucks and things like that. So it, it's a very different world. I know that sounds really optimistic, but I'm fervent in believing that we're getting to this a lot faster than most people realize. And that's really what's exciting to me. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon, Andrew Bush, former chief markets intelligence officer at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and economist at andrewbush.com. A deposit for your future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. More than 200,000 workers in Illinois told their bosses, you can take this job and restaff it in August. That's an all-time record. Let's examine the reasons behind the exodus with Rick Cobb, founder of the workplace consulting firm to discern based in chicago rick thanks for joining us today uh we've all heard about the great resignation there are a bunch of reasons as to why people are leaving their jobs in 
looking for greener pastures or different situations. But as far as Illinois is concerned, what's the number one determining factor? A uh, mismatch between uh, the skill sets and the needs. And, so is, and this is simply a, a case of a person finding that they went into the job and may not uh, be 100% uh, suited to that? I think it's really the reverse. So when we go back to, say, 2018 or so, when as, as companies were recovering, there was a real struggle to get the talent that you needed. If you were a suburban employer of size, you were trying to solve the problem of how do I get uh, the millennials to come out of the suburbs into my place of employment? And their skill sets were typically, you know, college graduates with skills in programming, uh, chemistry, all this, the, the STEM backgrounds. Uh, were were critical. And that never changed. Meanwhile, we have COVID. And during the COVID pandemic, you had between 25 to 35 percent of uh, young uh, men of color were unemployed. And as you turn things around or attempt to turn things around, there's just nobody left. You can compound that with the idea that if you as executive leadership are mandating uh, the way people will come to work and what they'll do. The people who have options, that you know, 200,000, uh, the 3.5%, which is the highest uh, resignation rate in the country right now, they're saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, I have the ability to find a job elsewhere. Uh, quality of life, cost of living are different elsewhere, and so I can just go. So this, there's a case of, of the, uh, quite a few people who say they enjoyed working at home. They don't necessarily want to go back to the office five days out of the week, and uh, they're going to vote with their feet. Sure. And I, and I think we, we have been, and I put this at the feet of our own uh, business leadership uh, on the business side for, for not really recognizing how different the, the, the workforce that you need, how differently they view work. They view it as a quality of life issue. They want to feel relevant and they want to feel like they're part of something. And, and I think many of the executive leadership teams are slow to recognize that. And, and now they're paying the price. And very quickly, Rick, is there, has there been any point um, in recent labor history where the applicant has this much leverage? Um, well, you know, it's interesting because in Chicago, we're one of the few major cities where we actually have more unemployed people than we do jobs. But I can't think of many times in the past, perhaps uh, in the in the rebuild post-World War II, but in general, no. But the other, the other part of this, though, is um, we have to address the fact that we have a very large population in Illinois in general. It's not just Chicago. It's also Decatur and some other places where those people just don't have a path to a job. They don't have the education. They don't have access to a job. There's no jobs for them in those areas. So it's, it's very hard for them to find a way into another job. And healthcare, I mean, uh, hospitality and entertainment, which is often in, and uh, fast food, those aren't available because of the risks. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Rick Cobb, founder of the workplace consulting firm To Discern. You'll find past programs and later today a podcast of this hour at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is back. 
and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.